Hello, and thanks for joining us on the Writers' Meeting with Dr. Michael Lightman. Hello, everyone. And let's start with our first topic, uh, the food crisis in the world. The war in Ukraine, which damages the world's crops, the climate crisis, which leads to the loss of crops, Corona, civil wars, all these increase the chance that food insecurity will spread in the world like a snowball and lead to acute malnutrition from many families who will migrate to find food and a drastic deterioration of countries that are unable to provide food. In 2022, 276 million of the planet's inhabitants across 53 territories are in severe food insecurity. Are we really on the way to a disaster? Of course, we're on a bad path, a path of so-called suffering. But we have the ability to reduce the suffering and maybe even not only to reduce it, but to also get rid of it. It all depends on our attitude toward each other, and toward the planet and wars, meaning all the problems that really stand in our way of arranging our life. It all depends on the connection between people. Is it just a problem of the third world, or will it come to, famine will come to the Western world too? Look, it reaches every place, but the Western world uh, knows how to protect itself compared to the third world where you don't have the, the power, you don't have connection, you don't have such intensity that these countries can protect themselves unite, fight against food shortage. Where do you see Israel in the food crisis? Will it suffer as a result of the food crisis? Israel, I think that we'll get along. We'll get along. We're a small country. All in all, the number of, with a small number of people, amount of people, we have ties, we have smart people that understand all the problems that can be. And I hope that we'll get out of it. The solution for the crisis is in the field of technology of, you know, we're already talking about genetic engineering for plants, making them more resistant to droughts, uh, pests. Look, these are things that we need to do all the time because the weather and conditions on Earth are really changing. And therefore, we need to be ready for it. Look, for that too, we have different means. Once I lived in the city of Rehovot, and I had friends who worked there in the agricultural institution, uh, institution of agriculture, and they, they told me how they're working on different special things there. 
that all the fruits and vegetables so they won't be that sensitive to heat to lack of water different things in short it's possible to overcome anything besides one thing that each thinks about himself every country thinks about itself and it doesn't care about other countries and if it does then it's how to sell for the highest price to those that are suffering and therefore it's a problem it's a problem that maybe the problem isn't that big but on the way there are a few more obstacles made and then what happens is that we really come to a big obstacle and big problems but actually we have solutions to offer there is genetic engineering absolutely absolutely we can make all these years of drought and everything we can go through all these things but our problem is the lack of correct connection between people and countries if there will be good time okay suppose every country makes technological solutions for itself no not each country can do that countries don't have the ability to create all those conditions that suppose like we can make here in Israel with everything that we have that with everything that we're doing in agriculture no we don't have that in other countries not even in the most developed countries you don't have things like that so of course everyone will suffer why are we capable of inventing a thousand technological solutions but in a world that has everything abundantly we can't cooperate and divide things correctly resources it's because the entire world works according to its ego according to how much it wants to receive gain off others and without caring that they suffer all the more let them suffer and will gain off it that's what everyone thinks that's the relation between countries for the world to take all these things together address them together and that there would be that they would have one goal which is to rise above all these blows to go through these times then we'd get along for sure but even in order to survive to meet our basic needs we don't cooperate countries don't cooperate don't work together even for that look how's it how could it be that there's no inclination toward that everyone's in their own ego every country is in its own political and economic general ego and the entire world our planet is like a pit of snakes that each just wants to gain off others 
and to harm others and maybe benefit yourself. And even if I don't benefit myself, but I harm others, then already it reaches a kind of relationship that's worthwhile. Is the first stage in starting to think about a serious solution to solve the food crisis is for us to acknowledge that we're egoists, that it will pain us. To acknowledge that we're egoists, that's true, and it's not a problem, everyone knows, but that it will pain us. It should pain someone that I can step on, but not that it will pain me that I'm an egoist. I just need to be strong. To defend my ego, to be able to always use it and in all directions. So what are the stages right now for solving the crisis? Because right now we see every country has its own solutions. Citizens are hungry. There's abundance in the world. How do you start connecting the puzzle? Where does it start? What's the first step? Everyone thinks, how can he accumulate in himself everything that he needs, for himself everything that he needs, in order to sell it at the right time to countries that are suffering and to gain off them. According to the simple law of the ego. So egoistic cooperation is the next thing. Of course, and no one cares that may the neighboring countries all die. Or on the other side of the planet, what do I care? The world, is it ripe for a global government already that takes everyone into consideration, at least on the economic level? Certainly not. Even though that there are different organizations, international ones, for those that grow different things, but no, the world soon will see, soon will hear in the upcoming year how much the world's suffering and is unarranged. So maybe in conclusion, what is your solution for the food crisis? My solution? My solution is simple. For us to take all the crops, for example, in short, all the food of all different kinds that there is, and to divide it equally to everyone all around the planet. Okay, Okay, that's a beautiful idea. Who can execute something like that in an egoistic world in which every country cares for itself? All the countries, all the ministers, all the everything, uh, like the UN, UNESCO, and others, take them all. And uh, you'll see that whether you're capable of doing it or not. But who can initiate it? We see that Russia and Ukraine, they're fighting and the entire world's suffering. That's not the end yet. You'll see how much of this of these crops will be burned, good, ready. Yeah, that's good and ready to feed people, how much of it will be burned. And... 
And how many people will die? So what's the solution? The solution is to, first of all, study, learn. How do we behave with each other and with nature and with the general force of nature? that is above us first to learn moving on to our next topic social exclusion among children yeah social exclusion is something that's there all the time this week an article was published about children who suffer from social ostracism and don't have a single friend to hang out with during the summer break and I think anyone who read it you know had tears in their eyes in the article you see beautiful intelligent children who simply don't understand why no one's willing to talk to them children who say all I want is a friend to meet with so first of all what what does the wisdom of Kabbalah have to say about um, social exclusion? It is a result of how those, the grown-ups, are distanced from one another. That's also what we feel on our children, that these kids don't want to be with those. And among them, there are different calculations, wars. Remoteness, it's all a result of the, the distance between the grown-ups because they, they're not connected. Yeah, because our entire environment is broken up, split up. Each is, feels proudful over others, things like that. And so to this day, I see that you know, still there's a difference between Ashkenazians, Sephardics, different such. And kids too. These are smart, these aren't. These are rich, these are poor. According to anything and everything, our ego is pushing us to divide ourselves into a thousand different factions, denominations. Kabbalah says that the entire correction is based on connection between people, love even, right? And this situation in which a society excludes a single child is something very extreme. How does Kabbalah relate to a situation in which society allows itself to exclude a single person? What are the implications of it? terrible implications and I'm certain that it will later come right back at us like a boomerang and will give us a negative response meaning a child that was shunned it's something that doesn't leave him it stays nonetheless inside a person and in some way later on works. Yeah. It always works to the detriment of society. What does it do to a person? It pushes him to 
in different directions. That he moves away from society or, to the contrary, he accumulates strength and comes back to society in order to pay them back that they don't want to be with him. So he pays them back with a bad attitude. We see it in many cases in life that children that are rejected later on grow and become very bad uh, towards society, and justfully, by the way. They didn't get an example, a good example. There's something about once a month, there's an article or report about children that were ostracized. And always when you see it, it like breaks your heart. Sometimes it's harder than seeing much, much worse things like accidents or other things that go on. What is it about shunning that really breaks us up into pieces? Because for children, it's the end of their life. If society doesn't want to accept them, rejects them, makes fun of them, etc., it's for them. Their life's over. Usually, uh, shunning starts with one or two people that hate someone, usually in a small group, and suddenly the entire class is in on it. They flow with it. What's that force that pulls all the rest of the kids? Everyone's an egoist, and everyone likes dancing on the sorrow of the other. And if everyone goes at someone, then all the more. And how is it that mothers who have children, they understand, what can a mom do if it happens in school between children? Can she all the time be there and sit and protect her child? No, no, not the the mom of the shun child, but their situation where the mothers of the ostracizers, they say, they justify what their kid's doing. I'll invite the entire class to this party, but not that kid. How is it that a mom doesn't have the sensitivity to feel that were to happen to her child it all depends on the education of the mother. Each and every mother, all of them together, and not that now, that there's uh, some case that they want to correct it. These mothers don't even understand how much, the, how ill the situation already is. Uh, you know, there's the known story about Bar Kamtsa, who was banished from a feast by that rich person and eventually the temple was destroyed because of that. Why such a thing which is petty compared to the general problems of Israel, why is this kind of behavior so dangerous? Because it's scorning, disregarding the opportunity of coming closer to another person and that's the worst thing. Do you think that social exclusion can destroy society now, too? We're in it all the time. We don't even feel that it's exclusion and 
disregard, and, but we don't feel that we're in it all the time. When someone sees something like this starting at school, that a student is about to be shunned, should he yell out because many, children, many times children are afraid to be shunned themselves for it? Of course. Look, there's nothing you can do. For this, it's necessary to reopen the education system. So, really, there are several channels on the Internet that try to raise the importance, the awareness of social exclusion, bring it to the knowledge of the public, but there are no real there's no real way to deal with it. You look and you say, what? I say that all these things will not help, did not help, don't help, will not help. But here, you need to thoroughly deal with these things in all of society, and maybe even in the entire world, I don't know. But you need to thoroughly deal with these things, at least in every country, because every country, in every country, or every country has specific things of its own. Okay, thorough treatment, you probably mean to formally deal with it, talk about these things before we go to formal education, meaning from the ages of two, three, for kids, to get examples from games, from everything that they have, as to it being a must to connect, and that by that you achieve all the good. We that are engaged in the wisdom of connection is there something that we can do to heal the wound called shunning? Of course you can do something. Try to invent games from the ages of two, three, and on, by which not anyone who just sits in front of the others uses up all of his options in order to defeat the other, but that they want to be together, that they want to help through different disturbances in the game, that you put in the game. That we connect specifically because here you have dogs or you have different things that stand in our way, in the way of our connection. How do we connect? How do we go through all the obstacles on the way in order to be together, in order to help others? And not that I defeat the other. All the games are in order to defeat. All the kids' games. Let's do it differently. We need to burn all the games, really. Do something that is the opposite to what we have. Otherwise, we will suffer more and more in the upcoming generations from what our children suffer. Our next item, living in a multi-generational home. There's a new phenomenon in the U.S. that reminds us of life in the past. 
2021, 68% of those aged 25 to 34 lived in a multi-generational home of one or both parents. This is an increase of 9% compared to 1971. As generations of young adults in the USA face increasing student debt and housing costs, multi-generational living is seen as the best and even the only alternative. Where do you see the trend going? I think that it's good to have it that way. Why does everyone need to have an apartment of their own, a special, you know, special apartment for them? But a young couple can even live with their parents. Sure, they need a room of their own, of course. But what's the problem? And in short, you need to do something that both according to our education, according to our willingness, that we will be willing to live with the parents. Right? I agree that today there are apartments, that there's a room for a child, there's a room for the... the so there's the parents' room, child's room, bathroom for children, bathroom for parents. Okay, somehow. But that it's divided in a way that nonetheless, along with your privacy, there's also some kind of closeness. And that's how you live together. Doesn't it take away from the independence of the young what kind of independence are you talking about? Or this is how the generations are integrating with each other, helping each other. I don't know if they're helping or not, but they need to get used to each having their own corner, place, territory, and that's how they live. Rabash, my teacher, used to explain how they lived. He used to tell me how they lived. They had a big room, but in the corner, he had mattresses, thick mattresses, and a few mattresses piled up. And in the evening, you take a mattress, you in this corner, they in that corner, someone in the middle, someone there, and everyone had a place on the floor, had a place on the floor, and that's how they slept. That That's how it was common. And? What's the problem? But today I have a room for the parents, for the children. Each child has a room of his own. I understand that, okay, for boys and for girls, that's clear. But for everyone, so what can you do? Maybe it's a matter of privacy at a certain age that young people want their privacy, adults. So I gave you an example that in the past, two, we all lived in one room. One room. That's called an apartment. Yeah, that's how it was in general. For thousands of years in humanity. 
So what changed? Why can we no longer live that way? Our ego wants to feel isolated from others and that it has a place of its own and these are my this is my room, these are my walls, no one can come in here, etc., etc. That's because of the ego that's growing all the time and we can't deal with it. We're not taught how to deal with it. So what's the corrected form of things? Corrected form is our education that all of us nonetheless are in one family, close to each other, and it's no big deal if we all live in one room. It all depends on the relations between people. No, no. Sorry, you wanted to add something? No, no, not at all. How surprising is it that it's happening in the U.S., where independence is one of the most important values in life there? Well, precisely there. We have a very extreme example of how every child demands a room and an apartment of his own and a home of his own, and that's how they grow. Yeah. So there's no certain age in which the young need to leave home in order to learn how to be independent. It all depends on education. Suppose in Russia, there was never something like that. Never. There, you had a two, three bedroom apartment and the entire family somehow got along. So what responsibility do they need to take the young living in the same home, house, so that they won't be dependent all the time on the parents' paycheck or all the convenient conditions that they get so that they'll learn to take care of themselves too, take care of everyone. Look, that's the problem. Rabash, he used to tell us, that his fa- that his wife's parents they are veteran veterans in Jerusalem many generations in Jerusalem they were very rich and therefore they had an apartment with two bedrooms understand two rooms they had two rooms and they used to rent out one of the rooms and when Rabash married their daughter, then they gave them that room. This was really a big present. So 
So, it goes both ways. I think that if we work on it in a goal-oriented fashion, we can very quickly go back to the same state where everyone will feel that it's not a problem, that we're living in this kind of clan, in this kind of society in which everyone's closer to each other. Because of the cost of living in Israel, we see similar things. Is it a trend of going back? No, no. Here it's because we have no choice. It's all. What can you do? That's how we're built. Our ego does not allow us to arrange things realistically, normally. I saw in China that they have entire cities there of thousands and thousands of buildings, tall buildings that stand empty, empty completely. So you see, that's how the entire world is in such distortions. In Abraham's time, they used to live in clans. Yeah, there was one tent, suppose. And it says there that Abraham, who? What is uh, who? After Isaac got married and Isaac came home with his wife, then that's how they lived together. And then his wife, Sarah, Abraham's wife, taught Isaac's wife how to make food, how to prepare everything so it will be suitable for her husband. That's how it was customary that the bride goes to her mother-in-law and learns from her how to cook, how to do things. How to make things that her young husband likes to learn from his mother. Today it's terrible. What young lady would get married today with a guy that is about to bring her home to his mother for her to live there and learn how to serve him? Will we be that way in the future too? Will we go back to being that way? Or what will such a society be like where everyone lives in the same apartment? Mom, dad, children, young, old, grandparents. I don't think that we necessarily need to restrict ourselves to that extent. But if we want to care for the young generation, we can care for them in a way that we can. We can do it.
What problem will solve the situation in society? I think that the problem is the desire that will want to arrange the current generation, the young generation, for children, for grandchildren, that there is room. There is room. We have thousands of square miles in order to build plenty of houses. And it all depends on our desire to arrange things for people for the better. If all the problems or economic pressure with all the economic pressure that we see in the world because it's something global is one of the purposes of it is to make us more connected in the family because then we're more interconnected. If we can't overcome the petty problems that we see only as signs as to how we need to get along with each other and coming closer to one another, finding common solution, then nature brings us to such problems where we already need to suffer and look for solutions under pressure and great suffering. Thank you. Moving on to our next topic, humanity is um, on the verge of collective suicide. The Secretary General of the UN warned a few days ago in light of the fires and extreme heat waves around the world that humanity is facing a difficult choice. The concentrations of greenhouse gas, as he said, the rise of sea level and the heat of the ocean have broken new records. Half humanity is in the danger zone from floods, drought, extreme storms, etc. He said, we have a choice to act together or to commit suicide together. And he says that the thing that bothers me the most is that in face of this global crisis, we fail to work together as a united community. Countries continue to play the blame game instead of taking responsibility for our collective future. We need to prove that the renewable energy revolution is already on its way. Do you think that we're on the verge of collective suicide? Yeah, we're ready for it. We're ready for suicide. No one thinks that our, our ego does not allow us to think about others, to make collective calculations. But let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But first you. But people don't want to die. No, but we're reaching states where, what do you think? We'll reach a state where the, the world's turning upside down. What does it mean, turning upside down? The poles, the what? Because we're reaching states where really there will be such eruptions 
of hurricanes, of tsunamis, of um, earthquakes, and whatnot. And when all the only thing missing is that when all these things will come together and will appear in places that no one thought they can happen, that we're always calm, we have no place to run to, only into the ground. That means that things are turning upside down. Yeah. I see our future... Were it not for the wisdom of Kabbalah and what we study, then of course we might um, witness such eruptions on part of nature that we won't be able to get out of. On the previous item, you said, you told Dudi that until we reach connection, you need to make all the adjustments in terms of the crops and everything with uh, genetic engineering to deal with um, crisis. The UN Secretary General is talking about renewable energy that doesn't pollute the, the planet. Do you think that in terms of the climate, it is all nonsense? Nonsense, real nonsense. One eruption of a volcano someplace lifts into the air such things and changes in the atmosphere that what does it have to do with all the advice that the UN's giving? Nothing will help. He should give us an example. Where does it work? It's all in order to get money from everyone and to disperse it to those that will vote for him. That's it. Nothing else goes on. We can't say that there was some kind of operation, suppose, some kind of action between the countries of the world, representatives of the UN, that they really acted and saved the world's population, humanity, from something terrible. No such thing. It's all a game in one direction. Give us money. That's what they say. That's it. And we already know how to arrange these things. Maybe theoretically, at least. No, no, no theoretically. In practice, we learn from all the years that we went through how all this is a fixed game. The UN can't help us in anything. I think that it's arranged nicely so that everyone can come there and all in all this organization exists in order for all the different secret agents from all countries for them to be able to get together and talk and do their business there but that's it and if all cars will be electrical and 
they'll stop burning coal. Look, I'm telling you again, it has nothing to do with one another. Because the eruption of one volcano in some place, you know, all those cars that you saved on and etc. etc. It's nothing compared to what volcano one volcano can do. I'm not saying don't do it, but don't pin your hopes on it for sure. He really says that there's a need for a collective action here. He says that we don't take mutual responsibility for a collective future. Instead of it, we blame each other for stuff. Do you think that such a crisis, a climate crisis, is the danger of collective suicide? Can it hasten unity in the world, at least to some extent? Unity, unless the world changes, can exist to the benefit of the world only if we go back to the Stone Age. Only in that state? Yeah. And if we're talking about the future, then there can't be unity, but to the contrary. Resistance, collision, eruptions, one opposite the other, one against the other. Man's ego is that which is at the basis of nature, and so there's nothing you can do. Look at Europe, how they're all one against the other, and because they have no choice, they're like snakes and one cage. So maybe people will really understand, countries will understand that there's no choice, but that they need to cooperate. No, not at all. No one will be able to concede to the other. Our ego is above nature. And it forces us, first of all, for us to die, and then I will. Meaning nothing can change, but, you know, there will be annihilation. Yeah? So what was the world created for if to begin with it's meant for annihilation? To discover that only by rising above our ego, according to the method of the wisdom of Kabbalah, will be we be able to be saved from collective death. So the understanding that we're facing collective death, will it help us understand or at least be willing to rise above our ego? We'll see. It's a Russian roulette. I don't know if it's Russian, what you call Russian. I don't see these roulettes in Russia. That's how the Americans call it. But is there... So they should do it before the bet. Why why reach the bet? In Israel... For some reason, there was 
a rainy winter, but in a good way. There weren't any disasters. And the summer, in the meantime, at least, is pretty moderate. No extreme heat waves. Certainly not compared to what goes on in Europe or in other places. What's going on? It seems like Israel somehow is protected from all the, these extreme things. Is there an, an explanation? I think that it's because you're praying. Can you elaborate? Mm, I can't. Um, you need to pray even more, and things are going to be even better. Pray for what? Everyone's praying. What is it that we're praying for? That will bring change. We need to pray only for connection. Only for our connection. And when you say you, who do you mean? The people of Israel. Look, I have no solutions. You're familiar with everything. These questions, uh, I have no answer for them. Nothing changed. In my science, there's nothing new. Nothing. I have nothing to say. If friends will connect, meaning Jews, Israelis, if they'll connect, then things are going to be good. If they don't, things are going to be bad. That's it. Al-Salam writes that problems will come to the world and Israel will be hurt first. If problems will come because of Israel, then of course Israel will get received first. But we learned that all the problems are because of Israel. Right. And also the problems now. Now it's not problems yet. In the meantime, it's not problems yet. So you're saying that when problems will come, then, yeah, the Creator will not forget about us. I wanted to ask what will bring the solution, but I think it's pretty clear. As we said. That's it? Uh, one more small item. Uh, a sinkhole opened inside a pool at a private party, and a 32-year-old young man was sucked in and died. The guy was very liked by his friends, and they and other people on the net reposted moving posts, text that he posted where he asks about the meaning of life. One of the questions was, how do you measure a person's self at the end of his life? Or in his words, who am I without my title, without my achievements or successes? Who will you be if someday you wake up and all these things will be taken away from you? So what is a person with all of his title, without all of his titles? That is what man is and all the titles. There is nothing to them. So what is that person without all the titles? How would you define this abstract thing without titles? That's man, that's what he has on the inside. What he has on the inside. What he made himself into. That he brought himself closer to the recognition of evil or maybe even to do good. But if not, uh, you know, they just say about him that he's a good guy. 
That's his title. That's what people think. We know that every person has the desire to receive. What is the uniqueness of every person? Only the measure to which he is capable of causing connection among others. And that's what's unique about every person. Yeah. What's the right way to measure a person at the end of his life? If you can't, you can't, but still there needs to be some kind of impression. We measure people only according to the extent to which they have caused connection between people. So can we say that this is the great contribution that a person can give to himself and others throughout life? The measure to which he has connected people? Yeah, that's the main thing. And this is what our organization is especially engaged in. One more small thing. Um, this entire meeting we talked about crises, fires, uh, but there are also small creatures that can drive us crazy, which are mosquitoes. What's the role of mosquitoes in man's life of insects and creation? Not to allow you to completely calm down but that you will know how to escape them and build a home and protect yourself against these tiny things. They're not taking you into consideration, as Bala Salaam writes about flies. And that's it. Try to overcome, and you won't be able to. So it comes to show me that what it's a kind of disturbance that's aimed to direct me towards something. Yeah, to direct you toward a state where you will need to be arranged with the entire world, with the whole of nature, and then all parts of nature. And the way they appear to you will take you into consideration in a friendly way. Chabash writes that our sages said that man was created after all the animals were. So if a person will want to feel proud, they'll tell him that a mosquito was created before you. So you don't see such a person until now. Besides, there's a collective punishment that we live in such a way that even the righteous suffer because of the population, the public. When you see a fly coming your way, coming to sting you, bug you, what are you supposed to do? You need to kill it? Of course. You need to kill it. Nothing can do. If it um, doesn't let you live, there are those that allow mosquitoes to sting them and drink their blood, etc. And everything, that there's room for everyone and to feed everyone and to give food to mice to hang around and eat. 
Surely I'm not talking about you. What are you all startled for? But really, there are such that say, no, that everyone has a right to exist and it's forbidden for us to kill anything, take their life away. There is something about it. That's an entire philosophy. So what's the right thing to do? You gave the two ends. You can't kill anything on the one hand, on the other hand, kill it. We, as human beings, need to make, perform corrections in nature for us to be able to live and be immersed in the correction of the world. Therefore, it's a, we're allowed to kill the still, the vegetative, and the animate, to use them in order to live and sustain the world, bring it to its desired correction. Thank you. All the best to you. Bye-bye. Shelly, today we're okay. Shalom.